Hello everyone, this is episode number six. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Enrique Saez. Enrique is an associate professor at Scripps Research Institute. His lab is studying the molecular mechanisms of metabolic disorders like diabetes and obesity. In our last episode, we explored his journey through the transition between industry and academia. I encourage you to check it out. I'm sure for those of you that are in the industry, would love to come back to the freedom of academia. It's a great episode to check out. However, in this episode, we'll explore his startup phase and what has enabled him to crush it and be successful in the independent academic setting. Let's chat with him today and hear about his journey and see what awesome lessons he can teach us so that we can be successful in our life science journey. We know his science, but what does it take to come from the structured form of industry to the freestyle love of academia? Let's listen in. Do you find that there is a huge difference between um, the industry style of communicating science versus the academic style way of communicating science? And how does that affect the financial bottom line of things? Well, I think... Hmm. Being able to communicate properly is um, a critical skill on both worlds. Mm -hmm. In industry, um, you have to be clear about what you have done. You have to, you know, meetings and presentations and so on. They may have a more um, sort of um, standard format with certain guidelines that every presentation, you know, certain type of slides that every presentation should have, goals or timelines or, you know, budgets and so on. Whereas in academia, it's a little bit more freeform. But I think at the end of the day, um, the ability to write and speak well, um, it's critical. Mm. One of the things that I try to instill in my postdocs um, whether you're going to be successful at getting papers accepted at high-profile journals or um, getting your grants funded, the ability to tell a story and framed always in the context of the big picture so you, you can tell people why the work that you're doing is important or the work you have done is important, it's really critical. And I see many people and I review many papers where um, some PIs tend to just put all the data that have generated rather than selectively uh, stick to the more relevant aspects of the story. The data dump. <laughs> yes. Um, and Or you just add some flourishes and so on. And uh, those things are necessary and typically detract from the story. Uh, I think you need to get to the point and you need, you know, you need to make sure that your writing is the best writing that you can possibly put forth. Um, and that applies to grants, to publications, to documents in industry where you, you, know, you have basically um, have to be very clear because management typically wants to get um, to the bottom line quickly mm -hmm, to the, mm -hmm. the executive summary as it's often referred to. Uh, <laughs> And you have to be, many academics tend to, or people who have 
when they initially make the transition from academia to industry, they tend to be more long-winded and less, um, less direct. Mm. So I think, like I said, I cannot emphasize how important it is that um, your grants, your publications, uh, but especially your grants, be very clear uh, and very well outlined. I, every time I sit down with a postdoc to write a fellowship, the first thing that I ask them to do is to give me an outline of the entire thing before they even write a war. So that oh, nice. Good strategy. We can see whether it actually makes sense, whether there's mm. specific games, do we have enough data to suggest that, etc., and whether it makes sense to organize the structure of the whole grant uh, in this way or that way. Uh, and that applies also to presentations. So when my people are going to go talk at Keystone meetings and so on, we will sit down and go over the outline of the presentation they're going to give. And of course, they will practice it and so on. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in front of everybody, but I think it's really important to communicate clearly why what you're doing is interesting and why, in many cases, uh, agencies or foundations should continue to uh, provide support for it. Oh, oh man, beautiful. It's, a, it's an author, Simon Sinek, who actually does a lot of like the industry type of communication strategies and one of the things he always says is that he just wrote this book called Start With Why and I think it's a good like framework to organize like storytelling and also your like main objectives towards any kind of communication style like the whole point of this is because of blah and then and it becomes like a reverse engineering if you will of the whole process because I think it really helps people to hone in on exactly how they fit in on that uh, in that conversation. And it's like, is, is this a waste of my time or is this a waste of my resources and money? What do I actually have to do to contribute to this? And do you think you learn more of that communication style from the industry side or the academic side or kind of a combination between the two? Or, or are there any influential mentors or leaders that kind of helped you in that, in that path? So I think I learned, I mean, being able to write well is something that comes with practice. You may, some people, um, perhaps including myself, may have a more natural ability to write well. But mm -hmm. the truth is, is writing well comes through reading a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, reading authors that you may, in fact, often before I write an essay or a, a grant, uh, I will reread some of the authors that I like, their writing style, because subjectively or unconsciously, it may translate into how I write, mm -hmm. especially if I haven't done it in a while. But it really is important to just practice, I think. Uh, and in industry, once you learn a little bit as to sort of expected style, then many of us didn't have too, too many issues. Industry does tend to be more direct and there has to be more clear objectives um, and so on. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether that was a good preparation for what came later when I started writing grants in academia. Uh, I think there it's really critical to draw from the resources of people that you have, who have already gone through the process. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for young PIs it's critical to sort of find a friend, mentor, uh, in the same department who can help out, who would be willing to uh, 
just advice how our grant is written, written, but also read the many drafts and so on before you even give it out to many other collaborators. Because some of the, especially the NIH grants, are rather formulaic. And the certain yeah, the reviewers are expecting to see certain things in there. Uh, and initially, you may not know that. You may not know that, you know, you could have X or Y uh, section, mm -hmm. or, or that, you know, if you're going to say you're going to find a compound that you have to, you would like to see specified criteria and so on. And I think some young PIs make the mistake of not uh, seeking the help of others early on. So that too much time um, writing about things that will not suit the, the style of the foundation or granting agency that is actually going to consider the application. Wow. So one of the things that, like, it's, it's kind of hard to write as much as you feel as though you need to when you have all of these other things drawing from your attention. On top of that, editing takes a significant amount of time. And I know we always can, you want to like have your uh, friends and colleagues and some of your mentors kind of read over some of your, your grants, but what are some things that you find that are helpful to lessen that time or that load? Because most of the time, young investigators, they feel super alone when they're when they're when they first start out and they don't feel as though that they have that uh, availability that uh, ask uh, of uh, other colleagues and stuff to to help them in this manner what do you think that they what are the strategies and uh, things that they could do to get the help that they need well like i said i think it's critical that you find somebody within your own department or you know somebody that you trust a former collaborator or, or something someone can actually help you out before you even write a word to basically sketch out, like I say, outline what a grant would look like. There's no need to write until you actually have a picture in mind that is pretty crisp as to what you want to propose and what areas make sense uh, or what areas may be perceived uh, as fishing expeditions or something by reviewers. Uh, and those are the areas you want to try to avoid. And, but the kind of feedback that you get from talking to more experienced colleagues, it's really invaluable in, in, in terms of um, being able to frame uh, how grants are written, particularly for the NIH system. Mm -hmm. But I think that applies to, it, it also applies to other foundations that I've worked with and, and so on. So making an effort to reach out uh, is critical. And there are some institutions that have mentoring programs. Uh, formal mentoring programs, but I think most institutions is done more on an informal basis and it's really up to the individual to approach people. And I think, you know, the chairman can be useful. Uh, chairmen who hire you have a vested interest, vested interest in making you succeed. So they can be a resource um, to pair you up or to help you out through the early stages. Um, of getting funding uh, and getting publications to the right journal in the right frame um, once your big name boss is no longer on the paper. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're saying like basically how you speak with some of your, your postdocs is a, a good strategy as well to use for with your collaborators 
come and develop an outline and have somebody go through that first before you even start writing. Because I know I've seen uh, young investigators, they ha they'll present a full grant application in the home or, and or a manuscript to other people like, I don't, how am I going to have this much time to spend a few hours going over this? Where an actual outline probably serves as a, as a better, uh, better introduction to, to, to writing that grant or manuscript, right? Well, I think it's, like I said, I think it, um, it's useful because you don't waste too much time. You <laughs> jot down ideas quickly and you discuss them with somebody uh, who then is engaged in the process. So he or she may be more willing to read the whole thing if they have had some input at the beginning and they have helped you shape how the grant was structured or um, suggested in a different ways of improvement and so on. So they are already more ah. engaged and like I said, I think they'll be more willing to look it over and help you out. Um, also, if you are somewhat reasonable in terms of the, the the timelines that you ask for feedback. Nice, uh, a little bit of psychology there. <laughs> well, I mean, in my case, I was very fortunate that a couple of good friends who were willing to look at my first finish mm -hmm. draft uh, basically within a day because the deadline for submission was coming up very quickly. <laughs> But that's unusual. <laughs> yes, so that's unusual, and I would not encourage people to um, to try that. I think it's it is true that writing grants takes longer than you think it's going to take, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. especially the first few times. Yeah, so I really like this approach where you had basically outlined the fact that you networked really well. You retained a lot of your networks within the academic industry. You went into um, an institution that actually has that collaborative uh, discovery nature that you feel much more accustomed to. And then on top of that, the fact that you brought in somebody that you felt comfortable with that can focus to uh, build the operational side of things where you can focus more of your strengths towards building a lot of the, the financial and resource infrastructure. And so you were able to focus, uh, focus that effort and energy towards that. On top of that, you were had good resources available to you to like help you uh, to get some of those first good uh, seeding grants off off the off the ground. Am I kind of like summarizing that pretty well right there? Kind of like your strategy, what you kind of like did fairly successfully. Yeah, well. yeah. Although I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, in terms of funding success, what really counts is the quality of the work. Mm -hmm. uh, and the significance of it and the novelty that you, you can provide. Um, so you, in some cases we're trying new approaches that have not been yet implemented in this particular field and so that provides, it's a bit risky but at the same time it provides a bit more of an appeal to the, the funding agencies that they're not funding the same kind of work over and over. Um, so I think you, as a young lab, you, you really, I would suggest that you really need some sort of competitive advantage over bigger labs, uh, more established operations. So whether that's something that is uh, applying new technology to the same system that everybody's studying, or whether it's you know chemical biology tools or new 
bioinformatic tools or whatever, um, using high-throughput approaches, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you have to find your own angle on these problems and hopefully those new tools would be somewhat accessible to you but not too many other people so that you don't have to worry about uh, not having the time to complete the story before a bigger lab does. Ah, so you're narrowing your own expertise and innovation in itself. And so kind of like highlighting that uh, aspect of being able to be very unique. And I think a lot of uh, young investigators stress and they start to want to do the safe projects, the safe experiments. However, the, it, it, does, the, it doesn't like pop, it doesn't like bring their attention to reviewers to like look at their work as really novel um, novel aspects but part of it is just the stress in itself right like how do how do you manage that stress that anxiety of chasing the grant versus chasing that new exciting innovative discovery i to be honest with you i haven't had to do that yet <laughs> uh, maybe i'm more calm or patient than other people mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. i you know, I don't work on things or I don't propose to do things that I'm not interested in doing just because I think they can be funded. Because, ah. uh, you know, I find that a, a bit, I wouldn't say dishonest, but disingenuous. And uh, I need to be excited about what I'm doing. And I need, and in the writing it actually comes off whether you're excited and whether you can make this into a compelling story that requires funding rather than a safe bet. I'm not saying that people should not also work on safe projects, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but I think, you know, in my case, there has to be an element of, uh, well, like you were saying before, adventure in terms of, and risk. Um, I'm willing to put up with that. I understand why other people may not. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in this day and age, um, you should try to ask the most interesting questions or this whole thing about go big or go out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that for a small lab that's necessarily, can necessarily go big, but you can go different. Um, you can go explore at least for a certain time. Um, so I don't really stress too, too much about those things. And I think I let the excitement of the science drive uh, where we're going to go and hopefully, you know, the quality of it will be compelling enough that reviewers will um, will see it as such. Ah, so it it brings you it brings us full circle to back to the science why you're in it in the first place is because this is this is what you want to do this is what you love to do and becomes that 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 passion for it to drive your expertise your knowledge your confidence in the work that you did and the quality that like high level of quality you put towards the research and science and makes you so much more resourceful and so therefore you're able to provide all the available resources towards that like clear scientific vision and goal i you know like i find that pretty darn cool <laughs> <laughs> and then i think this is this helps not only myself but even others out there that like can get too easily bogged down down by a lot of the details and sometimes creating a, a basic sketch and outline for that clear goal really, really helps kind of like uh, propel, propel yourself. And I think 
you've nicely, eloquently, like clearly, like identified that. And it, when it comes down to it, it's the the love of the science that you that you are there for, and like the industry didn't provide you. This is why you went back to academia because of of that passion. Well, let me correct you, Damien, because it's not like industry didn't provide. Um, you know, you, you can do very interesting science in industry, and, and we were doing that. I just wanted to go beyond um, some of the areas that industry was working on to go beyond the, the traditional therapeutic targets into something perhaps a bit more risky, but also more uh, exciting from my perspective, which was to explore the rest of the genome that, you know, so far has not been drugged or even considered as druggable um, by many. Uh, so then it's more of just a, a clarity and your passion, the things that you find very interesting. It's just like, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I think industry does have the ability to, uh, you can do very interesting work in industry. Uh, and in some cases, um, only industry can do certain things. Academics may not be able to do them. Um, it is true that in, in a very established uh, company, then you do tend to do a bit more of a specific job. Um, but at the same time, some excitement comes from seeing your small molecule progress toward clinical trials or, you know, your antibody being uh, put into people and so on. So there, there are different types of satisfactions that come from industry as well. Oh, awesome. For those that are still uh, interested in an industry, this is a good way to look at it. So I won't keep you too much, uh, too much time but I wanted to ask you uh, two last questions is what would you recommend to that, that young uh, Enrique Saez a few years back if you were um, deciding what, what was one thing if you knew then if you know now what you knew then what would you recommend he do? Uh, tough question. I'm not sure uh, I would change things too much. I probably would have explored a little bit. I was comfortable when making the transition from industry to academia. I was comfortable of and uh, very eager to stay in San Diego and that's part of the reason why um, I didn't explore beyond uh, Scripps. Scripps mm -hmm. also seemed a perfect fit for me. So uh, I was comfortable with that but perhaps I should have explore a little bit more, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like you were suggesting earlier. Um, in terms of actually, and actually this probably applies to both academia and industry, one thing that I should have learned earlier is that um, you shouldn't get too, too attached to any particular project. Um, you need to be able to figure out when a project is just technically too hard, too difficult, too challenging, and you're not going to be ma making too much headway. Um, and that applies to both industry and academia in the sense that in industry sometimes you work really, really hard on a project, um, but the decision comes from management, which may be in a different country, to discontinue that project. Mm -hmm. So it can become too, too attached to your stories. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's very difficult when, when you have been asking your group to come in on the weekends and so on to develop this molecule and then the whole program gets scrapped 
the yeah. following week. Um, in academia, it's slightly different in the sense that some people, including myself, uh, we have to have we have certain attachment to some of the stories that we developed, and we try to follow up. And sometimes it's just too difficult, and we end up spending too much time and resources on things that um, we should have thought through a bit more, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I mean, it comes to a point where you have to be willing to cut your losses and just. If it's not yielding fruit soon enough, um, then you should be able to move on to something else because there's plenty of problems in biology. <laughs> there's enough to go around. <laughs> I believe so, for the time being. <laughs> well, one last question. What is your definition of a scientific leader? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I can tell you what I look for uh, or what I've admire about some of the people that I've worked with or some of the people who have just uh, influenced me uh, and so on. And I think the greatest thing that I like, to, the greatest quality that I like to see in a uh, scientific leader is, or a boss or something, is vision. I want people to, I want somebody to have, to go beyond what is here and to show me what, what but it can be. Um, I've worked with people that just by basically saying out their dreams uh, have gotten people to work really hard towards achieving them. And so a scientific leader is somebody who can motivate people to go beyond um, their capacity and to do so in a willing, willing manner. You know, people will volunteer. With, their time because they find that uh, whatever the goal is, it, it's a worthy goal. Um, so I think that's a talent that some people have. And I think it's one of the qualities that I look for in somebody um, in terms of a leader, somebody who goes beyond what's already here, somebody who can trust you if you are working under him or her, um, who's not going to micromanage your work and that applies more to industry than to academia um, but also that you know really it's merit oriented and doesn't necessarily think that everybody under him or her should be treated the same just because um, you know, there's certain rules and regulations I think there has to be room for um, the fact that not everybody may be as motivated as uh, yourself uh, all the time and so on. So I don't know whether I've answered your question um, correctly or not, Damien. No, I don't think there's a, any real correct way. I think it's a definite, like, identifiable trait that, like, people should always work toward. And you're right, that vision really matters significantly to be able to paint that picture and communicate that vision toward people. And not only just to those under you, but those who, who collaborate with you and those who are uh, you see as your mentors or teachers because the better you can paint that vision to, to them and communicate that vision to them, they're more than willing to help that, help you to achieve that same vision and goal. And then I, I, I think it's amazingly beautiful. Yeah, no, I think, and like I said, visionaries are the people that um, inspire others. Um, and I think... 
it's critical to the people who can articulate um, a vision of the big problems and how to tackle them, regardless of how risky the approach may be, often motivate you to work towards that goal. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's one thing that I I look for um, in institutions, in, in the leaders of institutions, whether it's in academia or industry. Mm -hmm. Many of uh, scientific inventions and discoveries have happened because of those uh, because of the visions. Well, Enrique, thank you so very much for taking this time to like speak with us today. I think you've got a, an amazing girth of knowledge, and um, I think people will really, really appreciate that. Okay, well, I'm happy that to be talking to you. <laughs> thank you so very much, Enrique, and we'll definitely uh, leave some of your contact information and show in uh, some of your attachment to your great publication streak up on the show notes and until the next day okay thank right. you Davis. thank you <laughs> wow what an amazing leader and an awesome friend thanks Enrique for sharing your story if you'd like to know more about Enrique science and his research please go check out our show notes and you'll see a link to all of his great published material and laboratory information at www.leadinglifescience.org forward slash podcast forward slash episode six thank you for listening to the leading life science radio podcast we'd love to hear from you the listener so please leave a comment or suggestions about questions you'd like to hear from our guests that could help you on your journey also please let us know what leaders in science inspire you to pursue a career in the life sciences till the next time happy sciencing i'm your host damian wilpitz of the leading life science radio podcast